once again, you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host and clearly a dweeb. <laughs> My goodness. What a day. My God, I am tired, but I'm going to soldier through. I got a responsibility here at the old Inspired Minds headquarters. Yet again, I would like to thank my good friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, for continuing to bless me with an incredible roster of people with whom to speak. Um, and this gentleman coming up, his name is Mark Fisher. I will get into some details about him soon. But he did write a book about radio and the history of radio and how it affects his society. So I just thought I'd do something quick and fun, at least for me, maybe not for you. And that is to just talk about some fun facts about radio, do some weird shit that I found that I will talk about if you all are interested. So as always, we're going to go ahead and start off with a, it's not a national anthem. It's not really that doing that today, uh, but it is a radio-esque sounds. Right? Just, you know, old people music. Okay, so radio fans, here's what we got. Fun facts. The word broadcasting is actually a mid-18th century agricultural term that simply means wide scattering of seeds. That's kind of interesting. The first incident of telephone hold music was a mistake caused by, this is amazing, caused by a loose wire touching a metal girder at a factory. It turned the entire building into a mega radio antenna that would play the music from a next door radio station when people were on hold. Holy crap. But my favorite fact that I just, this is, I just fell in love with this little tidbit. It turns out, stop that because I got to cue another song up like an old school DJ maybe. Because the very first radio jingle in history was made for a Wheaties commercial, and it's basically the world's first singing commercial. It's performed on Christmas Eve in 1926, and it's called Have You Tried Wheaties? And it's barbershop, and it rules, and it goes like this. Have you tried Wheaties? They're whole wheat with all of the bread. I mean, that's. You can't go wrong with this. Barbershop. Oh, nice change. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, I really did have a good uh, chat with this gentleman, Mr. Mark Fisher. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. How about that? Uh, first on the show, hopefully one of many, did have an Oscar winner, Diana Asana, and an Emmy winner, which all I means is I just need maybe like a Tony Award winner, and then I got the EGOT, for those of you who have any idea what the heck that is. At any rate, Mark Fisher, which is a fantastic interview, um, he's written two massive books. One's called Trump Revealed, where he actually interviewed Trump uh, for it, it's, it, and that's the one he won the Pulitzer Award for. Um, he wrote this book called Something in the Air, which is a history of radio that I described. It wasn't just the entirety of radio, per se, but it's like a common soundtrack and this sense of unity through mass media, and it all kind of started with radio. We did talk a lot about Trump because he'd interviewed him and he had spent so much time with him. He understood and he had these incredible insights into that psychotic man's frazzled mind. And we also talked about the opinion piece that he wrote called, Is the United States Headed for a Civil War? And that was pretty mind-blowing. But again, it was a fantastic interview. One of my favorites for sure. I got to do my Dick Cavett. I don't do Dick Cavett a lot. I'm totally Johnny Fever from the WKRP guy and David Lee Roth. I got to do Dick Cavett, ladies and gentlemen. Booyah. All right, I'm done. Thanks. Well, hello once again to the Inspired Minds podcast, uh, Dazzled Throng. May I introduce to you the wonderful Mr. Mark Fisher? Mr. Mark Fisher, please say hello to the Dazzled Throng. Hello, Dazzled Throng. <laughs> I am, uh, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm extremely uh, excited to do this uh, little shindig. But the first question that I always have for every single interview that I do is, when you were young, all right, what was the first thing that you can recall that truly inspired you, that lit you up? Was it a song? Was it a book? Was it a – I know it wasn't Alone Again Naturally, like we just discussed before we recorded. That's a terrible song. That it was not. Um, but, you know, it probably was something on the radio. And uh, I had – a very intimate relationship with my transistor radio, which I kept under my pillow at night and fell asleep to, um, meaning that I ran through a lot of batteries. And uh, that 
there's something about radio in the middle of the night, in the darkness, in the aloneness of that time. Uh, and I would listen to some of the weird all night talkers, people like Long John Neville, who was an early all night talk show host in New York City, who would spill out all kinds of crazy stories and invite on people who had conspiracy notions and UFO uh, stories to tell. Uh, and it was just, there's, there's something about the cosmology of the world at that hour when you are susceptible to suggestion uh, that just totally drew me in. And I wasn't buying all these crazy stories, but I was absolutely fascinated with them. And it got me into a lifelong fascination with figuring out why people behave as they do and why they think as they do. And so I, I, it was just an, almost an obsession that I developed from a very early age, uh, thanks to some good old juvenile insomnia. <laughs> you know, it's funny, actually. Um, I pulled those names out of, uh, to, to discuss um, because I listened to a lot of that stuff as well. Um, when I was probably about 20, 30 years ago, I would drive up in the middle of the night and I would, uh, in the middle of nowhere when I was, uh, heading out to a couple of the places and I would hear Art Bell. I would, you know, I would listen to coast to coast and it was that feeling of the theater of the mind that was so critical for me as a, as a young man. Um, and I actually did my research on, uh, Long John Nowell and <laughs> kind of the predecessor to a lot of these late night kooks. And it was something that I'm, I'm actually in a weird way trying to do that here. People have asked me to do YouTube, uh, videos as well. And I just, I don't like it. I like the theater of the mind aspect. So that was something. That that is, yeah. That, I mean, that, that, that's exactly what drew me in and, uh, that, you know, those radio shows in the middle of the night were a window onto the subconscious of the American soul. And, uh, you know, I think to the extent that I think I understand the Trump phenomenon, the populism, uh, a lot of the extremism in the country today, uh, I, I draw a lot of that understanding from those early years of listening to the kind of underbelly of, uh, of the American mind. And, um, you know, there, there is, this country has an enormous and really quite beautiful capacity to absorb all kinds of weirdness and extremism. Uh, and traditionally we've managed to kind of funnel that toward the center over time. Um, and the internet has kind of played a trick on us in that, uh, that funneling doesn't really happen as efficiently as it once did. But certainly in the 60s and 70s, when I was listening to that stuff, it was teaching me a whole lot about the fact that there that people can contain all kinds of wild and irrational ideas, even as they conduct seemingly normal lives. You're right. Uh, those early radio shows, those late night radio shows in the middle of nowhere, and also guys like Phil Hendry and like some of these you know, some of these radio broadcasters that were, again, to use that phrase, really great at the theater of the mind. But you're also right about the funneling. Can you kind of explain a bit more about that? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, so radio is this, as you say, this amazing theater of the mind. It's a place where the the listener is as much a part of the interaction as the performer, because you have to, at every moment, be creating in your mind a picture of what you're hearing. And so that's a creative process that you engage the the, the listener in. Uh, so it, it really is a two-way conversation, even if someone's not calling into a show. So radio is a place where you can play with the imagination, and that can take you to very extreme places, as all kinds of uh, good and bad actors have figured out through the years, and whether they're just telling stories like Gene Shepard or uh, uh, trying to sell products like Long John Nebel or trying to push people toward more extreme political ideas like some of the early uh, raging talk show hosts like Bob Grant in New York. Uh, it, there, it, what, what we have there is a, an opening to a wilder aspect of ourselves. 
Now, what American society has always been really good at is taking that, taking those ideas, taking those crazy things and pushing them, edging them toward the center because we always had a fairly limited media landscape. So there was only a handful of ways that you could get information and news. You watched one of three networks on TV. You, there was one monopoly newspaper in most cities. And so all of those wacky ideas, all of those extreme political concepts got kind of massaged into something that was palatable to most people. And you could look back at that time and say, oh, that that excluded voices and that excluded some of the more uh, wacky and, and interesting ideas. Yeah, it did. It, it smoothed things out. It compressed them, if you want to use this, the term from sound technology. Uh, but And that was a bad thing in that some of those outlier ideas maybe fell by the wayside. But it was a good thing in that it pushed everyone to have a shared foundation, a shared base of information and uh, of ideas. And that's what we've lost in the last decade or two as social media has taken us off into a thousand different directions and has given those extreme views every bit the same platform as more mainstream ideas. Yeah, you call it a shared pop culture and and, and radio is a common soundtrack. Um I think uh, that there's another line that you had basically that the, there's a sense of unity through the mass media and it started with radio. Yeah. So, I, you know, the last two books I wrote, one was a history of radio since TV came along and the other was a biography of Donald Trump. And the more I think about them, the more I look at them, they're essentially the same book. Um, and what I mean by that is they're both about uh, that idea of taking those ideas that are at the edge of our consciousness, that are uh, that are maybe not socially acceptable, that are maybe uh, disturbing or uh, disruptive of the way things work, and looking at the ways in which they got pushed to the middle. And what Trump represents, what late night talk show uh, radio hosts used to represent, uh, was the idea that, well, let's hear a little bit more of that stuff. Let's give vent to more of those uh, emotions, the anger, the frustration. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know if I'm directly answering your question, but I really think there is that commonality, whether you're talking about pop culture or the media or politics in this country. Yeah. And, you know, there's something I wrote down that uh, perhaps you'll agree with, that as as radio, um, and I guess really the internet, quite frankly, um, they became more fragmented with more choice than so are we just by definition, right? Because you're absolutely right. There's some guy out in the middle of nowhere who can listen to Alex Jones or who can listen to, you know, old Rush Limbaugh tapes or whatever that looks like. And they are, they, they find their voice, right? They find that guy that says, and, and, and to your point also, Trump is also, a, I think a byproduct really of that kind of fragmentation to begin with. Is that kind of where you're heading? Yeah, I mean, Trump is a, a direct product of that uh, that slice of the culture. Uh, in my interviews with Trump, uh, if I brought up the names of radio talk show hosts like Bob Grant uh, or um, Morton Downey or uh, any of the sort of angry voices of the 60s, 70s, 80s uh, that he grew up with, he came alive. He, he, he yeah. absolutely grew up on a heavy diet of that stuff. And he huh. was a, an avid, uh, almost addicted watcher and listener to late night stuff because he doesn't sleep very much right. and, uh, he's addicted to media. And so he, his, his whole political development came out of that vent of outrage that became so popular uh, in the period when he was really in formation. And so, uh, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world are, are a key influence on Trump. Uh, and even earlier than that, a lot of those voices of outrage were what fueled him. Uh, and if you go back and look at some of his interviews from the 70s, Trump is much more soft-spoken. He seems much more reasonable. But the positions he's taking, the politics he's espousing, even back then, is straight out of uh, outrage talk radio. Hmm. It's funny you bring up Morton Downey Jr. I would have never made the connection, but you're absolutely right. Because 
you know, he was sort of that rock'em sock'em, you know, robot kind of uh, screaming. And, 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 you know, that makes perfect sense, especially how Trump's sleeping patterns are nil. And of course he would stay up late watching those things. Um, God, that's, that's so fascinating. And, and, uh, and, and professional wrestling, uh, you know, the WWF stuff, the, the bond between Trump and WWF goes way back. Trump made numerous appearances there. That's was one of the key before the apprentice. That was the main way he was connecting with middle America. Uh, he, he appeared there. He, he, he and Vince McMahon had a real kind of, uh, soul bonding, uh, sort of relationship on the show. And they both, saw life as a show and uh, they both wanted to be in that center ring. Right. And also too, as far as that combative uh, aspect of him, I, I think the most telling, or at least one of the most telling things, excuse me, about Trump is that he learned from the foot of Roy Cohn, you know, and that guy was obviously a corroded human being who taught him those lessons of life um, does he ever talk about Roy Cohn out of curiosity? Oh, all the time. Um, I mean, in our interviews, uh, in the White House years, he was constantly asking his lawyers, why, where's my Roy Cohn? Why don't I have a Roy Cohn? He was constantly searching to this day. He is searching for the lawyer who can uh, represent him in the way that Roy Cohn would have, uh, a scorched earth, uh, no, you know, all ethics aside kind of approach. And uh, that's what Trump grew up with. Uh, that's where he learned how to be combative uh, as a way of staying at the core of the show. Uh, and he has never found a lawyer who's quite like that. Um, and so you could really paint Trump's professional life as a 40 or 50 year search for a successor to Roy Cohn who at a very young age, when, when Trump was really in his early 20s, just getting out into business on his own, he had his father as a model. His father was certainly a, a great business model in many ways for Trump. Uh, but he, Trump looked down on his father for his lack of vision, his lack of ambition, uh, which is a strange thing to say about an enormously successful real estate developer like Fred Trump. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, what Donald saw in his father was someone who knew his world and stayed in it, that world of the outer boroughs of New York City, building apartments for the middle class in Brooklyn and Queens. To Donald Trump, that was small time. He right. wanted the big show. He wanted Manhattan. He wanted uh, celebrity. And Roy Cohn was his ticket and his uh, teacher, his way of getting there. Cohn taught him how to work the media. Cohn taught him how to uh, use bad developments to your own benefit, to embrace and endorse bad news about yourself. And uh, and Cohn taught him how to always be fighting, always be pushing back, always be the aggressor, no matter how good or bad a situation you're in. Didn't Roger Stone introduce the two of them? I don't think so. Uh, um, I, I, I think it was probably the other way around. Um, and uh, Cohn... Uh, was really involved with Trump uh, in a much earlier phase of life, really going back to his early 20s. Uh, that's when they first bonded. That's when Cohn spent a lot of time with Trump. Uh, Stone came along not that long afterwards and, and was one of the key people who kept encouraging Trump uh, to edge toward going into politics. And, and you know, this was a, uh, you know, Mario Cuomo is famous for his Hamlet-like uh, doubts about whether he was going to run for president that went on for years with this public anguishing about whether he'd run. Trump is that times 10 because Trump, uh, going back to the mid-70s, was talking about running for president, uh, but seemed very reluctant for many years uh, basically because he was at that point wedded to the idea that you don't do anything that you're not going to win at. And he didn't see a path toward winning back then. Fascinating. I'm also utterly fascinated by, uh, you know, it's interesting, actually, you know, Trump has such an incredible way of drawing these absolutely bananas characters towards him, right? You got, you know, Stone with the Nixon tattoo on his back, for God's sakes. You've got, 
you know, Giuliani as the quote unquote lawyer, you've got the Kraken lady, you've got, you know, just X and Y and Christina Bob now over at OAN. And, um, and it, it, have you seen a decline perhaps in the people in his orbit or has it always been the same? No, it's always been a bunch of uh, wannabes, losers, grifters, um, people who um, have found a way to gain celebrity, whether through infamy or not. And uh, and what the, what they have in common is their uh, endless, groundless loyalty to Donald Trump. Uh, that's what he appreciates in people. That's what he adores in people. He likes people who know how to get uh, a lot of buzz. He likes people who also know their place and are not going to upstage him. Uh, but above all, what he likes is uh, is just unbridled loyalty. And uh, so you see that in these people who similarly crave the limelight, who similarly uh, will say anything to get attention, and who similarly have a kind of base disregard for the rules and traditions and norms that most people live by. Uh, and uh, Trump finds that thrilling in a very adolescent kind of way, he finds it really exciting when you run across a lawyer uh, who uh, doesn't play by the rules and doesn't uh, uh, show the same respect that lawyers generally show toward one another. And so he's he's always been deeply skeptical of and antagonistic toward people who are uh, rule-abiding uh, traditionalists. He he likes to think of himself as someone who's always smashing the glass. You know, going back to Fred Trump, actually, it's interesting. Um, as a therapist, I'm utterly fascinated by family systems and holistic uh, thinking when it comes to that world. And what do you think Fred taught Donald? Well, he taught him a lot, uh, both directly and indirectly. So directly, he taught him how to how to be all about winning, how to um, how to settle for nothing unless you're going to get your way, uh, how to not compromise, how to um, shoot for the stars, and uh, and just keep going no matter how people tell you uh, that you're failing or that you're wrong. Um, what he got indirect. So there's that stick to itiveness. There's that uh, absolute fear of being a loser. All of that comes from Fred Trump. What also comes from Fred Trump is what he didn't do. So Fred was a very distant father. Um, and it was extremely difficult for Donald to get a lot of time and attention from his father unless they were doing work together, unless Donald was accompanying his father to collect the rents at the buildings or something like that. Uh, so the rest of the time, he was kind of on his own, and Fred was distant both emotionally and physically in that he was off and off with his uh, various mistresses, uh, off doing his work, uh, not, not at home a whole lot. And so what uh, Trump learned from that was a, uh, to, to demand loyalty at work and to not show loyalty when it came to uh, his own uh, wives and girlfriends. Um, he was uh, someone who grew up in an atmosphere where uh, concepts like loyalty and honesty and so on were really uh, limited to uh, very narrow areas of work and not the rest of life. Um, and so the missing, equa- the missing part of the equation there with Donald and his background is his mother. And uh, as a therapist, I'm sure you're very interested in the fact that in no biography of Donald Trump, in no history of the family, do we get anything even remotely close to a real, living, emotionally textured picture of Donald Trump's mother. And and that um, that's that's intentional. Uh, and I I asked Trump in our interviews again and again about his mother, and I got the same wrote answers that he's always given people. Oh, she was, she loved showmanship and oh, she loved the British Royal family and she loved to watch television. So you can see certain things that show up in Donald, his love of pageantry, his love of excess, his love of television. Um, but, but what's missing is her emotional sculpting of her son. Um, we hear that his father was very tough on him. We hear that his mother was uh, much more kind and loving. Uh, and yet there are not really stories about that. Um, 
there are rumors and, and, and little bits of evidence that she was incapacitated in the latter part of her life, uh, that she may have had a drinking problem, which does run through the family, which Donald talks about, talks about it especially about his older brother, his beloved older brother, who um, died of alcohol-related uh, illnesses, uh, which led Donald to swear to never have a drink in his life. I, 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 uh, I spent a lot of time tr- uh, tracing that, uh, checking that, and uh, I never found a single person who had ever seen him take a drink. Um, but from his mother, he got that uh, there was this this ability to uh, to be emotionally distanced, to uh, to, to slough off criticism and direct attacks. Uh, but there's a mysterious aspect to that relationship uh, that no one has solved. That's, you're right. That's utterly fascinating. I often say that when a uh, when a family member dies, traditionally, you uh, get an heirloom, and that heirloom may be a car, boat, money, house, whatever that looks like. But it's the emotional heirlooms, the perspective heirlooms that we pass down from generation to generation. And I heard a story, actually, and, and I'm sh- perhaps you know this probably do, that one time when Donald Jr. was in school and he was at the dorms and then Donald uh, Sr. was coming up the uh, coming into the dorms and everyone knew about it and everyone was excited. And then he walks up, knocks on the door. Donald Jr. opens the door and he smacks him for no reason whatsoever. And that, you know, that fear that that obviously he handed down to him in that heirloom carried over through his kids and carried over through anybody in his orbit. That's absolutely right. Uh, I've heard that story from a number of people. And uh, Trump has a fierce temper and he uh, gets away with yelling at people, maybe not slapping them physically, but certainly slapping them down orally. And um, he gets away with it because people have that fear of him. You saw it in the early cabinet meeting, uh, that shameful cabinet oh. meeting where the, everyone went around the room uh, in almost Soviet fashion of uh, uh, pledging their allegiance yeah. to Trump and praising him to the stars. Uh, that was just a, a, a raw exercise in fear. And um, and that he got very much from his father, who um, who ruled by fear. And uh, there are various people who Trump considers heroes or mentors. Uh, and what they have in common often is their, the fact that they were disciplinarians who got their way by force, who did slap people down. And uh, so that those are the models that he values. Uh, and that's the uh, that's the, the kind of public or at least uh, semi-private persona that he's chosen to, to present. Yeah, it's terrifying. And here's a segue. Um, I really do want to talk about your uh, opinion piece that you just posted about two weeks ago called, Is the United States Headed for Civil War? And I specifically, if you don't mind, want to tell you a quick story about my experience with the Murrah building. When uh, in 1995, um, uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I would have been a bunch of bands and I was on tour and we were in Oklahoma City two weeks after the bombing. So I said to my bandmates, let's go check it out. And they had just begun the demolition. You know, there's that building, you know, Murrah building had caved uh, in. And as I walked up, I noticed that there was a chain link fence uh, surrounding the entire block because it was a demolition zone. And as I walked up, I will never forget this as long as I live. I walked up and I saw tucked in every single nook and cranny of the chain link fence were cards, letters, flowers. I saw baby shoes right? And I lost it. And that that visual has always stuck in my mind. And it hit me about three years ago. I thought, wait a second. Those are just two jackasses with a copy of the Turner Diaries, a truck and a bomb, zero internet to coalesce, right? There, were, there was no Proud Boys. There was no, I mean, the thoughts were there, obviously. And I really do want to talk about William Pierce, who I saw that you interviewed. But you know, th- th- there wasn't any way to really organize necessarily. It was just two crazy guys. And now that we have this giant thing over the internet, now that's where I get terrified. But I really do want to talk specifically about your interview with William Pierce, because he did say that one line, one day there will be real organized terrorism done according to plan aimed at bringing down the government. So what was your experiences talking to him? I mean, I know this is quite a while ago. Yeah, this is going back to the 90s. And William Pierce, uh, for those who don't know, is 
the author of a book called The Turner Diaries, which is a novel, a work of fiction. Nonetheless, it spells out in great detail how a rebellion, a kind of uh, of individuals and uh, loosely organized militias in the United States uh, could, and in his book did, uh, coalesce and essentially overthrow the government uh, through a series of bombings and uh, guerrilla tactics. Um, and although it's a very right-wing, white supremacist, anti-Semitic um, approach that Pierce and his pals had, um, their tactics actually reminded me more of the weather underground of, of mm. the left from the 1960s than of anything else. But Pierce was kind of a loner, lived in the woods in West Virginia for many years. Um, he was a smart guy, well-educated, and uh, the book is terribly written. It's very hard to read. It's, it's really dull. But it does present this scenario, and it became kind of a cult uh, book for people who were on the radical extreme and uh, very frustrated and perhaps violent, uh, and people like Timothy McVeigh found the book and read it and used it as a textbook. And so I, I talked to Pierce a few times during that period. He was available. You got to get his phone number, call him up and he would chat in West Virginia. Wow. And um, he, you know, he, like many extremists, he's a very intelligent guy who just has a particular screw loose about uh, certain beliefs. In his case, uh, the idea that the United States should be a white, uh, country, uh, white Christian country. And, uh, he had a deep abiding hatred of blacks and Jews. And he, um, could sound very ugly and dumb when he talked about, uh, brain size and, uh, you know, eugenics kind of stuff. Um, and then he could flip and seem very intelligent about, uh, political analysis and how he was very open and honest about the fact that his movement was made up of largely of really dumb guys who didn't understand politics and he had to teach them and this was his obligation. Um, so interesting guy to talk to uh, and very helpful on various stories that I wrote. Um, but he has become in, in his death um, a real folk hero for extremists of various stripes. And uh, so Pierce was right about the fact that uh, you're never going to get the kind of uprising that really turns into a threat against the government or against the system in this country unless somehow all these disparate groups and factions somehow came together, which seems highly unlikely even now. So you know, now we're in a period where there's probably more palpable fear of a civil war than at any time since the late 60s. Um, but I think and you you can and various people I quote in that in that piece in the Washington Post uh, do spell out a scenario where this all does add up to not just a January sixth one off, but a real concerted uh, series of attacks that does threaten the stability of the government. You can make that scenario. You can look at the Proud Boys and look at the various other groups like that. And you can look at the Alex Jones audience and uh, what they've been led to believe. And then look at the individual crazy actors who go out there with assault weapons uh, and uh, take hostages or shoot up a school or uh, threaten to kidnap the governor of Michigan and so on. And you can add all of that up and say, they're going to get their act together and they're going to create a civil war. I, I'm not convinced. Um, and I'm not convinced because of January 6th, which is kind of weird because January 6th was really scary and really uh, unsettling to our system. But nonetheless, the system kind of worked on January 6th. And despite a, a, an aggressive administration that was rooting on those who were trying to take over Congress, uh, despite all these folks who'd come from around the country armed and ready for a battle against their own government, despite them getting into the belly of the beast, right into Congress itself, despite all that, the military, the police, the press, the Congress itself, uh, the legal system, Dozens of Trump-appointed judges who rejected all of his challenges. All of those structures came together and held the fort. Sure. And so 
I'm skeptical that we had, and I think January 6th, in its uh, lack of cohesion, in the fact that you had all these guys there who who later said, and even then said, that they weren't really quite sure what the end game was and what they were doing there. Uh, all of that adds up to me to uh, something that says, this: we have a real problem here. We have deeply frustrated people. We have a real bunch of extremists, and they are ready and willing to be violent. But I'm not seeing how that adds up to something that anyone could conceivably call civil war. Right. And I think it's a definition of civil war that people were kind of bandying about. I think that's um, I actually spoke to uh, for, for the show. I spoke to this guy named William Cohen, who I believe had written for you guys and just a bunch of people written amazing books as well. And we had that conversation and he asked me point blank. He's like, do you think we're going to have a civil war? And, you know, when people think of the word civil war, they think of, you know, blue and gray and state and state. And like you said, I think this, and I truly believe that there will be a quote unquote civil war, but I believe it will be like the Weather Underground. I also believe it will be like the IRA uh, with, with the uh, with the UK, the British, um, just with random terror bombings. And the reason I say this is because, well, precedent, but also because you, you and I both know that what really kind of what happened on one six was that their amygdalas were were flared up, right? That fight, flight, or freeze kind of mentality. And that fear sells. Fear travels so quickly in the brain, whereas truth takes a bit of a takes time. That's in the prefrontal cortex. You know, there's processing involved. You need holistic thinking. You need abstract thinking and not concrete. And what I saw was a bunch of yahoos with a bunch of concrete thinking who got their amygdalas fired up from various sources, from Trump that day, from Giuliani that day, from all kinds of Alex Jones and in and, and, and that extremist world even before that. So my fear is that it will be random bombings here and there. That's my civil war that I'm afraid of. Yeah, but even even random bombings here and there requires a level of organization. If you go back and look at the Weather Underground or the IRA, these are really well-organized, disciplined organizations that had both uh, the capacity to bring people together and communicate across the country, but also that had that were driven by a a, a deep and abiding and studied ideology. We don't have that. So we have some of the groups, we have a lot of the rage, uh, but we do not have a clear, adopted, accepted ideology of extremism uh, that that offers an idea, a plan to people to in order to recruit, to uh, bring them into the fold and then to discipline them in such a way that uh, that they're willing to be soldiers in that movement. We don't have any of that. And it's a good thing we don't. Well, would you say, you know, earlier we were talking about fragmentation, right? And how uh, not only television and radio, but obviously now kind of the, you know, the Internet and, and, and all of its uh, pain and glory. But would you not agree, though, that that the fragmentation has kind of expanded and has allowed these extremist voices to be heard. And I will say this, you know, I think the most terrifying thing for me was this uh, was in the uh, American perspectives survey that they did in uh, last year. And the quote is terrifying too. It says, quote unquote, only 15, 15% of Americans believe that quote, Trump has been secretly fighting a group of child sex traffickers includes, you know, Hollywood elites and all that. And the word only is what terrifies me because that's 50 million people. Yeah, it's uh, it's frightening. I mean, uh, you know, look at uh, the whole QAnon movement, yep. uh, you know, tens of millions of people buying into uh, just absolutely absurd notions and and really deeply believing them. So that's that's always scary. Um, and but you're right about fragmentation. And I think. You know, fragmentation works both ways. It's it's a it's a terrifying thing because it means that we don't have a shared foundation of fact. Um, it, if you don't have that shared foundation, you can't have a real, legitimate, honest political discussion or debate. Um, so first, you have to agree on agree on the facts, and then you can say, "Well, I apply this ideology or this uh, policy concept to that," and and the other guy says, says something different. You can't have that conversation unless we agree on the facts, which we clearly don't. Why don't we agree on the facts? The internet, why right. uh, social media, all the, all the ways in which we've been split apart from each other, and I think really the number one 
piece of evidence for this and the number one effect of that splintering that we've gone through in our media uh, and in, in, in our daily lives that the Internet has brought about is the decline of localism, the decline of local news, the decline of local commerce and retail, the decline of people's local identity with their community. That's how we defined ourselves. We were always Americans, but we defined ourselves as I'm a guy from rural Minnesota. I'm a guy from the Bronx. I'm and and, and we had a full, thriving, living culture in each subsection of the United States, and we were different in those ways. We came together as Americans, but everything, the, the core activities in our daily lives were local, from getting the food to uh, hearing the news to communicating with our neighbors and friends, and that is all been shifted dramatically and radically and quickly by the internet. And so we're in this state of dislocation now uh, where that lo- those local bonds have frayed to such an extent and it's been replaced by this amorphous, distant, anonymous national culture, which is not good for our health. A thousand percent agree with you, my friend. Here's another question that I just thought of, and this is a really vague question, but I'm curious to see where this goes. Who would you say, and again, this is intentionally vague, who would you say is more influ who was and is more influential? Walter Cronkite or Tucker Carlson? Uh, it's a great question, and it's also kind of a trick question because clearly Walter Cronkite was much more famous, much more respected, much more widely. Uh, looked up to as a model, as uh, someone who's credible, but he had less of an impact than Tucker Carlson because he wasn't selling us an ideology. He wasn't selling us a point of view. He was, to the best of his ability, trying to give us that foundation of facts that we could then go off and debate among ourselves. Tucker Carlson is trying to win us over or solidify our standing in one particular rather narrow, rather wacky worldview. And so while Carlson has a vastly smaller audience, he's vastly less well-known, you know, cable news, the the average audience on a given night, if if they top one or two million, that's a huge night for them. Wow, really? had. 70, 80, 90 million people listening every night. So wow. it's a completely different scale. But it, within that world where Tucker Carlson, he has enormous influence and he can shape people's worldviews and shape their uh, ability to accept facts and to, to understand reality. So I'd say he's well more influential, although to a far smaller group. You know, and to your point, actually, um, one of my favorite documentaries that came out recently was. I've forgotten the name of it, but it was uh, the documentary about the debates between Gore, uh, Gore Vidal and uh, William Buckley. And that would never happen. I mean, the fact that that was a huge ratings hit with just two gentlemen, uh, you know, sniping at each other, but in an intellectual way, that was theater back then. You know, it, it just just blows my mind because that would never fly in a billion years here. Would you agree? You know, I, I think you're right. I, I somehow harbor the wish bordering on maybe expectation that if that was presented, it might actually gain an audience um, because the political, the state of political debate in our mass media today is so thin and so superficial and so dumb that uh, I would think that if an intelligent and entertaining and attractive alternative came along, there would be an audience for it. But you're right that it, it's not, it's certainly not where we are. And, um, you know, when you go back and look at uh, the Gore Vidal, Bill Buckley uh, debates, they were entertaining. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, they, they were, they had a whole lot more content to them. They, had, they, they were actually talking about real ideas, not just yammering about headlines like we see people purportedly debating on the cable news channels. Um, so I, I think an effort to move back in that direction might actually pay off. Uh, the problem, of course, is getting a mass audience in this hugely fragmented society we live in. Yeah, and the problem also is who the hell would do it? Yeah. 
right? Uh, I mean, I, mean I, I think you could find such people. You, uh, they're, uh, they exist. Um, you know, they're probably on Twitter somewhere, and uh, or maybe maybe even on Reddit uh, somewhere. But but you could you could concoct such a thing. You'd have to make a real effort to to make it sing and and uh, get it out there and get people to give it a, a taste. I'll tell you what, um, I'm going to get this going and I'll get it running and I'm going to have you. You're the, you're the guy so far. <laughs> I will, I will, I will, I have a couple of producers, friends of mine. We'll just get this rolling. How about that? Um, yeah. I, I do want to, before I close this out and here in a little bit, I do want to really want to talk about though, kind of back on the radio thing, because, you know, as a, as a musician, as a record company guy, um, I was steeped in that, in, in all of that world, be it radio, be it, you know, I, actually I worked in digital uh, media or digital marketing, I should say. And I was there at the advent of Facebook. I was there at the advent of iTunes when that first came out. You know, I mean, I've, I've really seen this entire thing switch out. And my question is, because uh, your book, Something in the Air, which by the way, I'm a nice thunderclap Newman reference. Thank you. I'm assuming that was what it was, right? It's got to be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Huge Thunderclap Newman fan. And so I guess my question is, how do you think then that streaming, because this was, I, I believe your book was kind of written a little bit uh, before kind of the, the real explosion of like Spotify and all those things. Uh, right. How do you think that's affected the topic now? It's changed it uh, to a fair degree. So what I was trying to do with that book, um, it's really a history of radio from when TV came along uh, to um, the mid 2000s, uh, the late first decade of, of this century. And so it's a story about how old technologies adapt or die or how they change when a new technology comes along. And in that way, it's, it's kind of a topic that, that's, that's everlasting. So what's happened in radio and in audio since the book was published is, as you say, streaming and podcasting have, uh, have really flexed their muscles. And that is the radio business, unlike when TV came along, has failed to adapt. When TV right. came along, they suddenly changed everything because their audience went out the door overnight. Uh, and their shows went out the door overnight, moving from radio to TV. And so the folks who ran radio stations had to look up and say, what do we do now? And the answer was, we do new things that we've never done before that no one's ever seen. Top 40 radio, all news radio, all uh, service radio about, that was really about the local community. Um, and so all these ideas that uh, that had never come to the fore were given a chance and worked. And so you got another golden age of radio after that, even as TV became the dominant form of entertainment and news in the country. So now we've gone through another of those revolutions and radio has failed to adapt. And so you're seeing people walking out the door to listen to podcasts in their car, to listen right. to Spotify in their car. The car was radio's base. The car was radio's home. Uh, and many, most Americans still listen to the radio in the car. They not a lot do elsewhere. The home listening is way down and they failed to adapt. I mean, what you hear on the radio now is not that different from what you heard 10, 15 years ago, except it's worse. Uh, there are fewer announcers who are local. There are fewer DJs. There are fewer people putting their own individual uh, stamp on the choice of music or their uh, political views. And so, uh, They've really lost the thread, and uh, and yet we don't have a clear replacement because as popular as podcasts are, it's a small minority of the country that actually listens to them. And as popular as Spotify is, uh, again, it's it's not uh, nearly the kind of mass medium uh, that uh, Netflix became, for example. So uh, audio is very much in play in this country. It's, it, there's obviously an enormous appetite for it, whether people are in the car or out for a run or, uh, just, uh, hanging out, uh, making breakfast. And, um, uh, and yet the technology has not settled down. Uh, there really still isn't a great way to listen to podcasts in the car. And, um, and we still have AM radios in our cars, which is bizarre. So, <laughs> uh, so, it's still very much in flux. <laughs> You're right about that AM radio thing. And before we close up too much shop here, or before we close up shop here, um, I will say this actually, my uh, talk about technology disruptors, my grandfather was a telegrapher, right? So 
all of a sudden Marconi did his thing and with the radio came about and his the, the entire industry was gone, but not only the industry, the talent, right? The skill of being able to telegraph, which is absolutely bananas to me, vanished in a heartbeat. So I wanted to bring well, that I wanted to if bring you that. could bring it back, I have a job for your grandfather because we could use telegraphing skills, the ability to 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 uh, squeeze a an important message down to just a few words. We could use that for the crawl on the cable news channels because those are miserably written. And if your grandfather was there, maybe he could spruce that up. <laughs> that's that's right. Actually, fun story about my grandpa real quick. Apparently, he would sit with my grandmother and they'd be watching movies and sometimes they'd have like a telegraphing guy in the film and he'd watch it and he's like, it's just gibberish. <laughs> <laughs> This is an amazing quality uh, to do this. So before I do really do this, I have one final question for you, my friend, and that is, uh, as a storyteller, let's let's kind of couch it as that. As a storyteller, when do you know that you're done? When do you know that it's time to send that book over? It's a great question. It's one I talk about with uh, young writers all the time. Um, and often uh, a problem with reporters is they keep reporting and reporting and reporting, and they don't know when they're done. So I know when I'm done, when I'm hearing the exact same thing from people I'm interviewing over and over and over again, and whatever, you know, from various different viewpoints, various different walks of life, when I'm hearing stuff repeatedly, I know I'm done reporting. Then when do I know I'm done writing? Uh, the easy answer is when the deadline comes. But the, the, the right answer, the more complex answer is, you know, you're done when you can't look at it anymore. Hmm. And, and that means, uh, that means you're tired of it because you've gone through it so many times and, and trimmed it and trimmed it and made it better and, and, and so on and, and honed your points, uh, really well. Um, and, uh, and then you reach a point where your eyes glaze over and looking at it is not improving it. To me, that's when you're done. I love asking this question. I ask it to every artist that I speak to, of course, which I refer to you as now, but um, because I get, I just get different answers every single time and it's beautiful. It's an amazing question. So thank you yeah. so much, my friend. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Um, I, I usually do uh, more of a Johnny fever WKRP shtick, like, Hey, I'm a podcaster, but I got to do my Dick Cavett today and I don't do Dick Cavett a lot. Not that I'm really Dick Cavett, but that's an aspirational goal. So thank you very much for that. You're like, this ain't Dick Cavett. But I always close this out the following way, my friend. I always close it out the following way, and that is I will uh, – it's a little bit of acting involved. I'm going to say goodbye. You're going to say goodbye, and then we're going to pretend to hang up and then have a quick one-minute chat, and then we're done. Deal? Sounds good. Excellent. Uh, really, Mark, thank you so much. I, I don't really get a chance sometimes to talk about some of these topics and as you can tell, I'm extremely passionate, especially since that moment in 95 when I, I've been watching this extremism stuff since then because it just terrified me. But that being said, ladies and gentlemen, by all means, go get this guy's books. Uh, I didn't even get a chance to ask you about the Washington Post, so excuse me for that. But I'm ultimately fascinated by your mind. It is truly inspired. Now your turn. Thank you, Jeff. It's been great. You asked terrific questions. Excellent. Thank you, my friend. And I'm going to pretend to hang up and we're going to do a quick bye. One, two, and click. <laughs>